0: podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We're in this series on First Peter, and uh, t- tonight we're going to talk about First Peter 3, um, but this, this, this letter, the, kind of the lens that we're using as we talk through this letter, is to remind ourselves that Peter's talking to believers who are, uh, in, a, in a way, living in exile. And you'll remember in week one, we talked about, okay, what, what does this mean, living in exile? Uh, that's not a phrase that we use or that we're familiar with, but for um, the Israelites in particular, for the Jewish people, Jewish nation, they were, f- they were very familiar with exile. In fact, one way of viewing the whole Jewish telling of history is through the lens of exile and, and homecoming. Uh, in other words, think about this. Okay, here they are in Eden, and then Adam and Eve, and then they sin against God and they get kicked out of Eden. Well, that is, a, is an exile of sorts, right? The vision, the whole Jewish hope of what's going to happen at the end of the world in the age of Messiah is that we return, that, that you remember John's picture in Revelation 21 of the temple descending back down, of heaven coming to earth, that yes, while it's true that when, it, when we die right now we go to heaven, the ultimate end is heaven coming back down and remaking the earth. There is this homecoming, this return to a, 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 a world that, that resembles uh, very much the way that God rene- Renewing of God, God renewing all things to where things resemble how it was in Eden. Okay, so there is this exile and homecoming sort of theme, but that's there, of course, in Israel's specific history. When they get kicked out from the promised land because of their unfaithfulness to God and all this stuff. And they live, you remember, they live among the Babylonians. They live under Persian rule. And even when they return under Ezra and Nehemiah and they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the walls. Even when they return, they get oppressed by neighboring nations. And the whole Maccabean revolt and Hanukkah that our Jewish friends will celebrate in a few months. What that is all about is the Jewish people having to go through yet again oppression. Other people coming in and telling them that they can't live the way that they, ought, they know they ought to live as the people of God. Now, Peter's borrowing a lot of these phrases as he's talking to these Christians and he's saying, you're strangers. In fact, he opens the letter with saying, to you who are strangers, to the exiles, to the Christians who are living in faraway lands. And he's pulling on this imagery of when Israel itself was scattered And Israel was taken into exile. And he's bringing up this imagery to say, look, even now the people of God live as strangers in a place where they don't belong. Now, we are kind of uncomfortable with this because we'd rather be Christians where we operate from the center of society. We like it when Christians have this place of power or this place of influence within society and culture. It's uncomfortable to us when we're on the margins. I asked the school of worship class earlier this year, I said, would you say that Christians in America are on the margins of society or in the center of society? And there was, they were torn because some of them were like, oh, we're on the margins. I mean, everybody's against us. And it's okay, hang on a second. Now let's think about Christians in some other countries and that they don't get to do this. Now, are you on the margins? Are you pretty close? To well, I guess we're closer to the center than we realize, but we're so used to being front and center that this little push out or whatever, we sort of feel like, ah, oh, we're on the cultural outskirts. But this letter that that Peter writes is to these believers who are in cities that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, as one commentary suggested, he said it's kind of, it's kind of addressed to cities that maybe are Uh, the backwoods of the empire in some ways. And the question that he seems to be addressing with them is, how do you live when you're surrounded by a culture that is against you? How do you live when you're surrounded by wickedness, when you're surrounded by darkness? What if, in spite of all of our efforts as conscientious Christians trying to make our voice heard in the public square and all this stuff, what if we can't fully overthrow or undo things that are oppressive or unjust even within our society despite the elections that are coming up? What if we don't get that or this? What if we have to live where we are the minority against a cultural grain of wickedness? I suspect that that's going to be our lot for a while. In fact, I suspect that, that really the church is... This is a familiar story for the church. The church all around the world and even the church for decent chunks of its history has had to figure out how do we live when we're on the margins? How do we do this? And so 1 Peter, in a way, is a study in countercultural living. It's a study in saying how do we live as the people of God, not just on our own, in our own sort of ghetto, but how do we live as the people of God when we're forced to interact with other people? people, other cultures, other strains, other forces and flows. Now, Peter has um, the section that we're going to talk about here in 1 Peter 3 is a, is a very familiar type of section. You see it in a lot of the epistles. You see it in Paul's letters. Uh, and, and it's a section that, that uh, some you know, commentators and scholars would call... Household codes, a set of household codes of how to live as family, how to live within, you know, do this. And, do, and we think instantly of Ephesians 5 and Paul saying this is how husbands and wives should treat one another and this is how kids should honor their parents and, you know, parents shouldn't exasperate their children and all this stuff. And so we're, we're familiar with the household codes sections in the epistles. Except that Peter's is different. In First Peter, he's not simply saying this is how you live as the people of God, Peter goes a step farther and he's saying, this is how you live when the community of the people of God is forced to intersect with the outside community, with the world, an unbelieving world. Maybe even, and for many, the way that Peter's writing this, you get the sense that maybe even a hostile world. Now, this kind of has us listening. Because you say, okay, wait a second, that that sounds like my situation. We don't all work for ministries or churches. I mean, some of us work for, uh, you know, unchristian bosses, non-Christian bosses or whatever. You know, like, oh my gosh, we have to interact with it, you know. And and, and some of you have family members that are not, that don't represent, that don't share your faith in Christ, that aren't followers of Christ. Okay, how do we do this? And Peter's whole section here is not just, hey, here's how the Christian home should be. Or here's how the Christian workplace should be. No, Peter's concern is, listen, I know that because you guys are living like you're in exile, you're living like strangers, you're living like foreigners. My concern, Peter's saying, is how do you live as the people of God when your life intersects the life of the world? And so many times we come to church and you you hear a, a preacher talking, you say, well, that's good and fine, but hey, you work at a church. I mean, I wouldn't struggle with this, this, and this, this, either if I worked at a church. But you don't know the the colleagues I'm around. You don't know the people I'm around. You don't know the situations. I was talking to a good friend of mine on the phone yesterday who flies C-17s. He was telling me about how C-17 pilots this year have have been gone 200, 250 days uh, out of the year this year. And it's been very, very draining on, on their community. And talking about some of the challenges that that creates, being away from family and being away from his wife and all this stuff and just the surroundings of that. That, that, that in those scenarios, in those situations, we, we want to ask ourselves the question, okay, so how do we do this? This is not just how can we live as the Christian community when we're all surrounded by one another. That's, that's a lot of what we talked about when we did the Ephesians series. But here we are answering, trying to answer a very different question, a much more difficult one. How do we live when we're forced to intersect with people, uh, a, a flow of culture, a way of life that really goes against the grain of what we know is right. How do we do that? And I think uh, 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, uh, is sort of a key verse for this whole letter. And I want to read it to you to kind of highlight this. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. He's saying it. This, this is the backdrop for this letter. Is, look, you're the minority. You're on the margins. You're having to do your life as it intersects with unbelievers. And then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable, be, honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. There's a lot of things that are contained in these few verses that we will unpack as we go through it tonight. But just kind of as a way of recap, week one then we talked about what do you do when your faith is tested? And when you do go through these trials and how do you hang on to a joy? How do you hang on to a joy that's based on what's coming even while being tested in the here and now? And last week Daniel talked about what happens When you are in the station of life, as some of these believers were, where they were slaves who had masters that mistreated them. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that kind of mistreatment or abuse or persecution? And he says, what about the persecution that we face? And I thought one of the things Daniel was kind enough not to point out to us last week is that maybe some of us aren't rejected by the world because we're not living in opposition to it. You know, well, I I don't know. I don't face any persecution. Maybe we're not living in opposition to it. And it's, it's begun to really strike me how often or how much we sort of take for granted that if the ends are okay, then it doesn't matter what means we have to use to get there. And so you'll see a Christian organization that's doing business the same way that another organization would do business because, hey, we've got a good mission. We've got a good goal. And so as long as our goal is good, we can be the same cutthroat sort of under the table. We can do all these sorts of things because, hey, man, our isn't our outcome good? But that's not living in opposition to the world, is it? I was talking a few weeks ago to... Uh, a, a guy who, who works in the record industry, and he was talking about how the, the, the feeling is sometimes in these Christian recording industry world. You know, you bring in somebody who's from such and such a company. You know, Oh, this guy was the VP of finance at Ford, and now he's coming to take over such and such a business, a Christian record label. And, and so everybody's sort of, you know, and he's impersonal and, and demeaning and doing all these different things. And they're saying, well, I don't know, but he really knows the real world because he came from Ford. So, well, wait a second. can you do business in the same way as someone else does business just because your goal is noble? Is that living in opposition to the world? And maybe the deeper questions as we're wrestling through this letter is, well well, maybe we don't invite the opposition from the world because we have not yet begun to think about doing things in a different way. And maybe we haven't thought about, wait, wait a second. Maybe me being here requires that I swim upstream, that, that even if our goals are noble and good, that shouldn't the way we go about them be different? Doesn't following Jesus mean some of that? And so today, this week, First Peter 3, we talk about this word, submission. And it's appropriate that we talk about submission today because so many of you did not wear 80s clothes today. <laughs> I've been meaning to bring this up. It's just perfect right here. No. I kid. But submission is, of course, an uncomfortable word because we've all seen leaders who are abusive or who are controlling or who talk about submission for the purpose of saying, okay, good. Now that I've got you believing in submission, now I can get you to do what I want. It's my hope and my desire each week as I open the scriptures and teach them for you to never leave you on a Sunday night with a list of things you are supposed to do now. And I know that may be frustrating to some of you because you're used to a, a, a preacher who's practical. And so you, you may very often leave here on a Sunday night and feel like, oh, that wasn't very practical. I, he didn't tell me what to do. Well, I don't want to tell you what to do. I want to get you thinking. And I want to get you asking the Holy Spirit, okay, what, wait a second, what, wait a second. That challenged me and that... That confronted something in me, but, but how now should I respond? You see what I'm saying? And so I think, I think submission is tricky because, we, you know, we've seen leaders who, who are controlling and want to be abusive and want to sort of manipulate and things like that. And the truth is, so we've got this experience, negative experience on the one hand, but on the other hi- side, other hand, ugh, 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 having a hard time talking tonight. On the other, it must be the 80s clothes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was... Anyway, okay, whatever. Um, I was going to tell you what I was in the 80s, but we'll skip that. Um, braces. Um, so on the other hand, we have these bad experiences on the one hand, you know, say, well, leaders are abusive, and I don't want to talk about submission. But on the other hand, we have this very real desire to sort of be aut- autonomous and to be independent, to say, look, can't I go it alone, or don't I have what it takes? And, you know, the interesting thing about this is sometimes the more we get confidence in our relationship with God, the more we can take that to be a license for independence. And the more we can say, well, hey, well, the Holy Spirit told me this, and so this is what I'm going to do. And I don't care what you say, and I've got to obey God rather than men. And we say say all these phrases. But it's just sometimes, very often, it's an excuse to sort of do whatever you want to do, to not be accountable to anybody because you say, well... I'm spiritual, and if I'm spiritual, then I can decide for myself. And I don't need anybody. I don't need structures. I don't need authorities. I don't need this. And faith itself becomes then a license or permission to say to an authority, well, yeah, that's cute, but I don't think so. I'm going to do this, okay? Now, in many ways, this is what was going on in the situations that Peter was addressing, particularly 1 Peter 3 opens with this instruction to women. And here we go, okay? And it's that submission word with women. But, but a lot of what was happening, think about the culture of this day, because a lot of what was happening is these women were discovering a new kind of dignity and a new kind of freedom that they hadn't previously known, that really hadn't been given to them in their society. In fact, in the day that Peter's writing, it was assumed that a woman took on the religion of her husband. She could have her little side projects and her little side gods, you know, little hobby religions, but the religion of the household was determined by the husband. And Peter is saying in this verse, okay, wait a second, women submit to your husbands and all this stuff. I'm going to read it in just a moment. But he says to them, he says to them, look, but, but, but surrender. So before we get to the submitting thing, we have to realize these women were, uh, were liberated in a way, if we can use that word, it's a bit tainted, but a word that, that we can maybe reclaim, these women were sort of rediscovering an identity to say, wait, you mean I can choose to follow Jesus even though it's not the religion of my husband? You mean I can make an independent, autonomous decision about who I'm going to worship? And that in, it, in itself was so countercultural that they were sort of running away with it and saying, well, if I can choose that, then hey, you, I don't need to listen to anything you say. And, they were, and there was this sort of this feeling of my faith is now a license to go rogue. That my faith is now a license to sort of be maverick, go maverick and, and, and do whatever I want to do and you can't tell me and hey, if I can choose to follow Christ then I can therefore also choose to do whatever I want. And it's that that Peter is addressing when he starts this. And so he says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word. And so here it is. He's talking about a situation where there's an unbelieving husband and a believing wife. That in itself was countercultural that a woman could choose to believe on her own, that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Instead, it should be of that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. But this is the way the holy women of the pastor put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. And he goes on and talks about Sarah and Abraham. And then verse 7 is really what might have been the more shocking part to the first listeners of of this letter. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Here he's saying... All right, men, I know everybody in culture treats women like they're property, like they just are something that you don't have to worry about them, you just sort of get them to kind of do what you need them to do. And, you know, and he's saying, you actually be considerate. See, it's interesting because we read a passage like this, and the thing that strikes us is, I don't know about submission, what about this? What about that? You know. And the thing that might have been more striking to them, it probably was, was the husbands, be considerate to your wives. They're heirs with you. But do you see that it's not that you're an heir of this gift of life and your wife is sort of a second-class citizen in the kingdom, but she's heirs with you. And this phrase, you know, just a little side note, this phrase with her as the weaker partner that has um, sometimes been misconstrued or maybe, maybe made to mean something that it didn't. I, I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He says, for they do not have the same advantages as you do. I think that's fair. I think that sounds right. That sounds like... In, in the society of their day. And he's saying, look, here's a woman who doesn't have the same privileges or advantages or strengths, maybe, afforded to you. And so a man with these strengths and privileges, what do you do? Be considerate of them. Take care of them. Protect them. And then he goes on, in fi- verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate. Humble. Do not repay evil with evil and insult with insult, but with blessing. And this is part of this we heard in our New Testament reading tonight. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. In Peter's letter, if you kind of look through chapter 2 a little bit and chapter 3, there's really three areas of, of submission that he kind of addresses. The first is this, is governmental. First 1 Peter two thirteen through 17, he's talking about uh, submission to rulers and to leaders. And he's saying, look, this is how you should uh, treat them. And this is what you should do and, and listen and listen. And, um, understand that they that they have their authority for a reason. And the interesting thing about this is here again. Remember the lens for Peter's letter that it's believers interacting with wicked people or people who are not followers of Christ, who don't who are against the. Who are, it's countercultural, and he's saying even when the rulers are wicked, submit. And then he talks about occupational, which you know is the slaves and masters passage we read last week, First Peter two eighteen through twenty. And then here's the familial uh, area, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And again, specifically with unbelieving spouses. So here he is in all three settings. He's making a point to say, when the rulers are wicked, when the masters mistreat you, when the husband is unbelieving. Do You see this pattern? Over and over again, he's bringing out this pattern of saying, look, when you are the one who believes in Christ and the one who sort of over you does not share that faith, what do you do? What do you do? Does your faith sort of give you an air of superiority when your boss says something and you say, we'll see about that. You know? How does this work? How are they able to do this? Really, the, the, the things that Peter kind of highlights and draws out and he keeps going back to Christ's life and Christ's suffering on the cross uh, is remarkable. Because his picture... Is always Jesus. 1 Peter 3, verse 15, the first part of it, he says, But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. If we were to ask ourselves, why? Why should we submit when a ruler is not godly? When a ruler is not the ruler that we elected? When a when a boss is harsh and, and, and demeaning, when, when what he asks is unreasonable, when a spouse is an unbeliever, how, why, why should I listen? Why should I go along? Why should I submit? On what basis? And he answers it towards the end by saying here, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. That the first thing to sort of be our, our foundation, our groundwork is that, number one, Christ is our Lord. That ultimately, submission is not to a person. That ultimately, the submission is to Christ. That it's not to say, well, you're so good. You're a good leader. You went to that leadership seminar. You do management critiques really well. You, you do performance appraisals in such a life-giving way. What if they don't? What if they call you in and chew you out in front of everybody? What if they're the worst boss ever? What if it's not them? What if we submit not because the leader is so good, but because Christ is your Lord? That in the end, Peter is asking them to remember who they will answer to. Who is it that you're really under? Peter's saying, look, you're, here you are. You're in exile. You're living as foreigners. You're, you're, you're kind of strangers in this place and you're surrounded by masters that mistreat their servants and all. And you're, you're in this world and you've got to live and you've got to interact with it. You can't run from it. You can't create your own little Christian subculture with Christian coffee shops. and you can't, you can't do that. That's not an option. So what do you do? Remember that Christ is your Lord. And so the reason you, you say, okay, I'll do this, Yep, the reason I'm going to have a great attitude, the reason I serve hard, the reason I work hard, is not because my boss just draws that out of me. He just brings the best out of me. I mean, how many of us could say that we have bought, I mean, don't raise your hands, you know, unless you're sitting by your boss and you want to, you know. But probably, chances are, not many of you have bosses who just, man, they just inspire me to be a better person. And I think I, I like, and I, I like a lot of the, you know, business seminar-ish books and stuff that kind of teach us to, you know, find out whatever the color of your parachute or the areas of your strength. I mean, I think that's fine, but you know, the danger with a lot of that is it makes you sort of say that you'll do something so long as it is fulfilling to you. That really, the lens is like, well, I'll work hard if it's, if it lines up with my passion, skills, and giftings. So, well, what if you should just work hard because Christ is your Lord? Well, no, but I, you know, you don't understand my boss, man. I mean, this guy's crazy, or she's just, you know, uh, I just, I can't do this, and, and this is just sort of, you know. No, no, no. I mean, I'll do what's required, and then pfft, I'm out. Really? What if you remember that Christ is the one you're working for? What if you, as you interact in the world, as you go to work, the, the, the point is not to say, well, my boss is so good, and he really knows how to draw out the, the thing. You know, what if that's not the point? What if the point is? Could you remember you put Jesus' face over your boss's face? <laughs> Why did they schedule me for that early morning shift at Starbucks again? That, that your real Lord is Christ. And if Christ is your Lord, that's how you keep serve. Don't you think it would be shocking? I mean, kind of Peter's point when he was talking about slaves and masters, and he says, look, if you're punished for doing wrong, hey, that's just, and if you're punished for doing right what if you just say okay well I'm just going to keep trying to serve And you know, I should point out that I, I suspect I think that in all of these situations that Peter's describing the person he's addressing who's under the authority doesn't have the option of leaving he's talking to a slave that didn't have the option of leaving He's talking to people who couldn't vote whether Caesar was their Caesar or not. It was their Caesar. And a woman couldn't leave a marriage in those days. So we're not, again, this is not um, a carte blanche sort of advice to say, hey, even if you're in abusive situations, just stick it out. I, I would never say that. Okay, so, so know that. But sometimes we find ourselves stuck in a situation that you can't get out of quite yet. Maybe you can't leave this job. Maybe you're, you know, maybe you, and you're saying, well, how, how, oof, what do I do? Can we remember that Christ is our Lord and he's the one we serve? Okay, but the second thing that energized their ability to submit and the ability to sort of say, okay, yeah, we'll we'll do this, this will be against the grain of our culture, is they had this conviction that Christ is our judge and vindicator. That Christ is our judge and vindicator. What does this mean? It means that they firmly believed that Jesus the Messiah would return, will return to judge the world. Hey, we say it every week, don't we? And he will return to judge the living and the dead. Do you know that that phrase ought to come alive for you when you say it every Sunday? Because what that phrase means is that because Jesus will execute justice, you don't have to try to take matters into your own hands. I'm not saying you can't make an appeal or do do the things that you can, but there's so many times that you find yourself in a situation where it's out of your control. Anybody ever been there? It's like, you know what, I tried this, I did this appeal, I hired this lawyer, I did this thing, and I just could not get this. There's a system of oppression or injustice, and it's locking me up. It's got. I can't do this. What do I do? And it's in in that moment that you rejoice in the fact that you say, you know what, Christ is my vindicator. Christ is is the judge. In fact, we could talk a long time about the desire to judge, but I think a huge part of why it's difficult for us to release someone else is because we don't really believe that Jesus sees it and will take care of it when he returns. Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale who writes a lot about the subject, particularly because of the atrocities that he saw, I think, in Czechoslovakia when he was teaching at a seminary there. Some awful, awful, unspeakable things. But he teaches a lot about this ability to forgive. And his, One of his landmark theological books is called Exclu- uh, Inclusion and Embrace. And the idea of saying, I don't have to stand over you and vindicate myself because I'm convinced that God will. And that really it's our lack of belief that God is a righteous, righteous judge, that he will call the nations into account. We read this in the, in the Old Testament reading tonight, that he will call the nations to account, that he will defend the cause, that there will be a day that he says, what happened here? No, and, and start to make it right. And see, vindicator and judge is not just punishment because you know, to, for anyone who's had something taken away or a wrong done to you, you say, well, what good does it do to punish that person? That doesn't bring this back, Right. You know, a person who's maybe lost a loved one because of a drunk driver. Well, you can sentence that guy to jail. That doesn't bring back money. That's true. But when the Bible talks about Jesus as judge, it's not just punishment. It's the setting of things right. It's the undoing of what was wrong. It's the breaking of the curse. Isaiah, in fact, is the one who uses the phrase that in that day, death itself will be swallowed up in victory. And Paul, borrowing that phrase in First Corinthians 15, says, Look, when Jesus returns and look, we rise with him and we get our resurrected bodies, don't you see that in that moment, death itself will be swallowed up in victory? This is not a statement about Christ as judge, as in, okay, well, you'll go punish the bad guys someday. Good, well, how does that help me? But it's a confidence that Jesus as judge will undo all that has been wrong, that somehow reverse it, somehow make it come untrue. I, I, just, I want to pause and say this for a moment because we often pray prayers of prevention. God, would you please protect that? Would you please prevent this? There's nothing wrong with that. I pray those prayers every time I get on an airplane, every night with our kids. We should pray those prayers. Nothing wrong with it. You know, lead us not to temptation, deliver us from evil. That's good. There are good prayers to pray. But I believe that a God who prevents is not as strong as a God who redeems. Do you know if you were to say to an artist who's working on a canvas, I'll say, well, I'm going to let my kids come and scribble all over your canvas. And the artist says, fine, I'll just start on this canvas. Say, well, that's pretty good. He's a pretty good artist. He can redo it from scratch. That's not bad. But what if I told you that there was an artist who, no matter how many scribbles and marks you made on his, his canvas, could make that painting still beautiful? Could somehow take those marks and those stains and those rips and those tears and say, okay, well, I'll work with that. And works with it, works with it, works with it. And in the end it says, look, 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 look. Look how I redeemed the scars and the stains and the marks and made it something beautiful. That's what it means to say that we believe in Christ as our judge and vindicator. That we're saying that, okay, look. What if this happens and what if as a result of me standing up at work I lose my job and what if this and what if that and what if this to say, well, you know what, even if the worst itself were to happen, Jesus in the end will undo it. Jesus in the end. And because of that, redemption is more powerful than prevention. The God who can prevent, pretty powerful. But the God who says, go ahead and try to mess up my plan, you can't that's more powerful, isn't it? I just think that's epic, that, that, that somehow if, you're, if your picture of God is just a God, well, God, please prevent, I'll submit, if you'll prevent this from happening, and then it doesn't happen, to, oh, God, how come? You know, the reason the early Christians were not afraid of death, that they could say in the face of Caesar's representatives and say, you know what, go ahead, kill me, it's fine, do it, I'll go. In fact, give me the sword, I'll, I'll There's there's martyr stories that go like that that say, you know what, come on, enough, let's go. I'll go into the arena with the beasts. Why would they say that? Because they knew that even if the worst came true, and what is the worst? Death. That even if the worst came true, death death itself will be swallowed up in victory. Well, if you know that, then nothing can stop you. Well, if you know that death doesn't work as a threat, then nothing matters. For the Roman Empire, death was their ace up their sleeve. They would say, hey, don't disobey or we'll kill you. And here's a group of people, followers of Jesus, who what did Jesus himself do when Rome threatened to kill him? Okay. No one takes my life. I lay it down. Okay. And three days later, The grave, the stone is rolled away. The grave is empty. Jesus is risen. Peter saw this risen Jesus. Don't you think Peter was convinced? He's saying, guys, I've seen it. Death isn't final. Resurrection is the end. And if resurrection is the end, then even if you submit and, you, and, 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 and something happens and you can't get out of the situation and, and the result of your obedience to Christ, result, you know what? Christ is our judge and our vindicator. And what that means is death itself is never the end. Future vindication is what empowers present submission. Future vindication is what empowers present submission. It's because I know that Jesus will one day make all things new. That we will rise. Because we believe that, they were able to submit. But the third piece of this, I've already hinted at, is that they believe that Christ was their example. Christ is our example. Over and over again in Peter's letters. In fact, if you sit down and read 1 Peter all the way through, which again, I encourage you to do that. Maybe do that once a week as we're going through this series. Just sit, sit down in 20, 25 minutes. Just read it all the way through. Try different translations. Do it in the NIV. Do it in the Message. Do it in the New Living. Do it in the ESV. You know. You'll know, you feel this cadence of Peter giving instructions and then going back to Jesus' suffering. And then he gives instructions and then he goes back to Jesus' suffering. And why does he keep doing that? Because he's trying to say, look... There was someone else who was on the margins of society. There was someone else who faced the power of, a, of an oppressive regime against him. It was our Messiah, Jesus. In 1 Peter 3, verse 21, the end of verse 21 into verse 22 says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. I wonder if Peter's saying, you know guys... I was scared on that day when Jesus was arrested. Remember, I denied him. I was kind of nervous. I didn't quite get it. But now I've seen him risen. And now we know that he's got stuff submitted to him. Powers and authorities are submitted to him. And I wonder if Peter's trying to say, Guys, look, remember we have this future where we're going to reign with Christ. But understand that you don't get to the reigning without learning the surrendering. That you don't get to the reigning without learning the surrendering. That if Christ is our example who didn't, didn't speak a curse, didn't, you know, didn't, didn't say anything evil, but said, okay, yep, like a lamb led into the slaughter. If Jesus went that way to his death confident that God would vindicate him, those are, those are Paul's words, that God would raise him from the dead. That's the form of vindication, resurrection. That because of that, He's, there's everything under his feet. And I wonder if Peter is detecting something in there for us to see as our example. He tells us in his letter, imitate this Christ, imitate him, be like him. Could it be that we can be trusted with as much authority as we've learned to sort of submit to, surrender to, could that be true? Adam and Eve, think of this as we close. Genesis 127, when God made Adam and Eve, he doesn't say, let us make man and woman in our image so that they can worship me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, let us make man and woman in our image so we can hang out and be buds. He says... Let us make them in our image and let them reign over all that is in the sea and the land and the creatures. They were made to look like God, to be in his image, and to reign over God's creation. Instead, what Adam and Eve decided was this whole submission thing's not cool. We'd rather reign. Yeah, we like the reigning part. But not so much the obedience part. And so let's just be a God unto ourselves. And what happens is they lose the right to reign. Revelations has this picture where it says the ones who obey, the ones who endure to the end, they're going to reign. They'll eat from the tree of life. There's these pictures of the martyrs, the ones who endure, the ones who... And I wonder if there is this correlation that in this new creation, new heaven, new earth, this ultimate end of all things, the ultimate hope of all things. That in that, we practice, prepare ourselves maybe, for reigning there by how well we understand the surrender and the submission here. I wonder if that could be true. That our submission is what prepares us for reigning. That our surrender is what prepares us for reigning. That really God's saying all along, look, can we take this back to the start? Can you be my image bearers that look like me, talk like me, sound like me, that are made and conformed to the image of my Son and with Him you reign? It's fun to talk about reigning and Christian power and Christian authority. It's not as fun to say, how do we trust Christ as our Lord, as our judge and vindicator, and as our example, to so think of that, because we want to defend ourselves so many times. I want to defend myself all the time. Well, well done. And look again, there's a difference in when you, you, can, you know, you've been misunderstood by a boss, and you try to explain it. That, that's fine, but sometimes you'll find yourself because we live lives that interact, interact, and intersect with people who are unjust and selfish. And, there will be times, and as much as we try and we're doing what's right, it just feels like it's coming down on you. What do you do? Lord, I trust that you're my Lord. I trust that you're my vindicator. I trust that you're my example. The power in the kingdom has more to do with humility than it does with self defense. Let's pray. Father, you know the details and the specifics of our hearts, our lives, and the situations in the workplace and at home and all the areas. You know where uh, maybe some of us are being misunderstood or pushed to the side or overlooked. You know where it hurts to try to surrender or try to do continue in a way that's right thank you for your son Jesus Jesus be our consuming vision be our consuming picture our example our Lord our judge Holy Spirit be with us bring your words back to us even throughout this week to be able to keep our trust and our faith in Christ even as we live as strangers in this world in Jesus name Amen Amen